not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Jennifer, who has quite a story to share with us, and we are looking forward to getting to know her and sharing her lessons and insights with all of you. So hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Oh, hi, Jean. It's so exciting to be here. Oh, I'm honored to have you. Uh, We connected through an online group uh, in which I caught wind of something kind of interesting that had happened to you and right away messaged and shared, would you come and tell your story on the bubble hour? And you're so gracious to comply. Thank you so much. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. This is um, truly unexpected and amazing. And um, I just am so grateful for the space that you hold every day for all of the guests that you um, allow on your show. Oh, thank you. It's my honor. Well, let's let's spend some time getting to know you. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Thanks so much. Um, first, I want to say that this comes from a place of having been where every person is right now, probably where they're gearing up to go take a walk and they're putting in their earbuds and they're getting ready to load up the bubble hour and take that next step on this journey. Um, I was that person one year and almost two months ago, and I have um, a not very exciting story to tell, I don't think. I didn't have a tragic bottom. I don't have an exciting background, really. Um, I think I had the typical ups and downs through my life. But somewhere in that journey, my switch was flipped, and I really started to feel like alcohol became much more a part of my life than I ever intended. Um, My background is that I grew up in New England um, with my brother, who's three years older than me, and my parents. Um, My parents divorced when I was four, I think. And although I don't remember that conversation specifically, the presence of that conversation in the room at the time, I, I mean, I remember the visual, I remember the feeling in the room, and I was always such a feeler. I always was, my parents used to call me radar because I would sort of sense everything that was going around. Um, It was so much sadness in the room and anger kind of from my brother's side, but I was sad. And I remember just feeling it was really dark and awful. Um, And I had wonderful parents. I have wonderful parents, but soon after my parents split up, my dad, um, who um, was an, is an alcoholic, um, but a functional, highly functional alcoholic um, soon um, met another woman who was a f- sister of a family friend. And that sounds so tragic and drama. And it really wasn't, it was just sort of the nature of things at the time. Um, he met this other woman and within months and almost a year, there was sort of this new family that was being created, um, on, on that side of things. And my dad had, um, sort of my dad and this, this woman, um, decided to merge lives. She came from Wisconsin with her two children who were the same age as my brother and me. And they bought a house together. And there was this new family that I, my brother and I had to kind of quickly adapt to. Um, and then on the side was my mother, who is a very strong person. Both my both my parents are really strong people. Um, and my mother always carried herself with strength, um, but she was incredibly injured and not because of any misbehavior or bad behavior uh, uh, within their relationship. Just um, she loved my father. My father loved my mother. They just weren't able to make it work. And so... My brother and I adapted to sadness on my mother's side, sadness on my dad's side, new families. Um, and it was a, it was kind of a rough go. And I remember when I first met that 
the the family, this other group of people that was now in my life, I remember feeling very instantly, I hope they like me. Um, and I sort of started doing some people pleasing thing at a very young age. And that became a really, um, common thread throughout my life. When I was in third grade, um, we changed schools into my dad's, uh, district. And the first day of third grade, um, was a traumatic event. I was absolutely terrified. Um, I was fearful. I had massive anxiety about going into this new school and anxiety was not really a common thread in my life at that point, but there it was. I chased my dad out of the room when he left. It was, it was just, it was just so overwhelming. I remember the sadness and the fear. And I say fear because when my parents divorced, it was the first time I really ever new fear. It's the first time I met fear. And I don't mean like I was terrified. I meant that fear of uh, uh, the fear to need protection. I had to be ready for things. I had to adjust. I had to make sure I was doing things right. Am I going to get hurt? It was fear. And it was a a common theme through my life that, again, I can look back on and, and see sort of its origin. And then in fifth grade, my my dad and my then stepmother got married, um, which actually as an event, it was really exciting. As, a, as an actual event, I was excited about a wedding. The minute they said, I do, in this really outdoor hippie wedding, I absolutely started sobbing um, and leaned on my dad, who I was right next to, and couldn't stop sobbing. I couldn't stop crying. I don't remember being sad before the wedding. I don't remember why I started crying. I just couldn't turn off the faucets. And um, again, it's a makeup, I think, of my character and my personality that um, that was so telling to me. And I, I still don't remember why I was so sad. I think it's obvious you could pick it apart, but it was um, it was a sad day for me, I think. And apparently I needed to express it. And that was, that was what I did. I, I wore my emotions on my sleeve always. I still do. And that has been difficult for me in a lot of ways through my life. I went through middle school with some trauma with eighth grade. It was just a hard year. It was, it was just more than awkward years. It was just, it was the first sign of sort of depression, I think, and not diagnosed, but I had a lot of um, sadness in that year. I didn't feel like I fit in very well. It was hard to be friends with people. I was always wanting desperately to have friends and be friends. And I had friends. It was just when they got so close, I got so nervous. Again, in hindsight, it wasn't anything I was aware of kind of at the time. It was not very exciting. And um, as far as, you know, other things in my life, that was just sort sort of a bad year. Meanwhile, I had this relationship with my step-siblings and my stepmother. It was all just kind of, okay, this is what we're doing. Alcohol really hadn't played any role in my life personally on my end. I mentioned my father is an alcoholic. He's a recovering alcoholic. I can't believe it, but he has been sober for, I think, going on five years now. But alcohol was in my life every single day. I just never knew any different. He was a very high-functioning alcoholic. He was a lovey drunk, is what we always say. But both my mother and then my stepmother married a man that was sort of one person by day. He was a therapist and he was, he is very well educated. And by nighttime, he would come home and unwind with anywhere from two to five martinis, gin or vodka, and the sounds of ice clinking in that tumbler. And then the glug, 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 glug of the the liquor going into the glass is the sound of my childhood. And in almost every childhood picture was a picture of my dad holding a drink. Um, I never felt unsafe. I never was conscious of his uh, drinking until my stepmother actually in high school started talking to me about his drinking and started using me as a means to get to him about his drinking. I want to say pushing her agenda towards him and, and trying to get him to stop drinking. And I didn't really see that at the time. She and I didn't have the best of relationships, but it was fine. But I kind of got up, caught up in that drama a little bit where I thought, well, maybe I really should be paying attention to this. And I addressed it with him several times over the years. It was never effective. It certainly was not. It was a big factor in, I think, the end of my mother and my father's marriage. And then fast forward many, many, many years later, um, the end of his second marriage too. That was, that was part of the reason 
that fell apart. High school really was kind of uneventful, except that <laughs> my freshman year, again, alcohol really hadn't been a part of my life, except then I was dating a really wonderful guy who was a senior when I was a freshman. And he was really a sweet guy. My parents loved him. He was in the same class as my brother and stepbrother, but they all hung out in different arenas. My boyfriend was a football player. I was a soccer player. It was this really cute thing. And then one time when we were first dating, he asked me on a Friday night if he wanted to go out. We were going out with his friends and he's like, so what do you want to drink? And I thought, um, I don't know, but I guess I'm supposed to act like I drink. And I remember this being a very conscious conversation in my head, but not saying it, of course, out loud. And he said, well, how about Southern Comfort? And I said, sure, <laughs> not knowing at all. And so we went out and I was riding around in the backseat of his friend Dave's car. And he's in the backseat and I'm in the backseat. And um, here we all are, like there were five of us, I think, in the car just drinking. And I was the only girl in the car. It wasn't an unsafe thing about there being all guys and me being the only girl. It was just, here we are all drinking. And I had never had anything to drink before. And so I proceeded to drink half a liter of Southern Comfort. And I had to be home by 11. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know. I wasn't thinking clearly. So here we are on a cold February night where he has to walk me up the street to get to my house and he's putting cold snow in my face. So I try to get more alert. I was a mess and he rang the doorbell and basically hoped to God my dad didn't answer the door. And it was actually my stepbrother and it was a, apparently a very awkward moment. And my boyfriend just kind of rang the doorbell and left and I had to try to get past my dad, didn't work. And so the rest can turn out the way you think. My dad certainly um, had lots to say to me as a therapist, and I had lots of lectures with a very bad hangover the next day and never wanted to drink again. And I didn't until my sophomore year in high school. And then I started drinking with my friends on the weekends. We did that all through high school. It didn't affect my grades. I was a great student. I was a soccer player. I had lots of friends. It was all the picture that you sort of think of in your head of high school. Um, my brother turned out to be kind of a troubled soul during high school, um, academically struggled. He got into some drugs uh, that really was way, the way he medicated himself. Um, he wasn't really a drinker, but it was more marijuana. And that took attention away from me. So I really just tried to take care of not making my parents upset or disappointing them, sort of some codependency things going on, not trying to uh, ruffle any feathers and just kind of keep everybody happy. Um, and we just kind of, they got my brother through high school. They got me through high school without a whole lot on my end. But at graduation that year, right after graduation, sort of as a celebration, was the first time where alcohol influenced a situation to a point that there was sort of a no turn back. Without a lot of details, there was a trauma in my life that involved someone very, it was part of our family, and it would not have ended the way it did had I not been intoxicated, plain and simple. Um, I'm not saying it's a reason that it happened, but I probably would have been able to make some different initial choices and be able to resolve that situation, leave that situation more easily. But I couldn't, and I didn't, and I wasn't able to, and that's that's what I've had to wrestle with always, and that's that's my own that's my own process and journey and it continues and I've made a whole lot of strides with that. Um, but the ripple effect of that was my friends found out about this and were not approving and didn't understand. And I lost all my friends. So in addition to one trauma, there was another trauma and I've lived with that as well. Um, scarred a little and have always looked back on it with, just tons of regret, but also just not really wanting to ever kind of get that hurt again. So I kind of always kept a little bit of distance with people. I'm pretty much an introvert at this point. I don't like to be around a ton of people. It drains a lot of energy out of me, but 
a lot of it is I just am so guarded a lot of times when I'm in a, a around a lot of people and friends, you know, I've just been really kind of hurt by friends a lot in my life. So relationships were kind of hard, but we got through, I went to college in the Southeast. I then, I, I typical college stuff. I went to graduate school. I am a practicing physician assistant and I have been doing family medicine and urgent care along with simultaneously doing college health. Probably I've been practicing for 22 years and um, have been doing college health probably 15 of those years. I currently only do college health. So I went to, to PA school where I met my first husband who um, I thought was just going to solve all things. He was uh, the nicest, sweetest, most wonderful, interesting guy. We got married within a year and a half or so. And soon, like within a couple of years, I think I started realizing, wait a minute, this, this connection that I thought we had, we may not really have. I loved him dearly. He loved me. But I think when I look at the whole situation, I was really I put more on him to fix some things than I should have. He had a little bit of a, a, a rough past with his mother, um, and I really kind of, I think, looked at that as I could fix that. I could give him all my love, and I could fix him. I came from this big family, and um, I could give him all this love and joy, and he would just be fine. And he really didn't need that. He was fine anyway. I took it as a rejection, and that's a really basic summary of our marriage, but that's that's kind of how it was. And I, I felt rejected. I felt like he didn't understand me. I didn't, he, we didn't connect. But in our 10-year marriage, we had a wonderful son who's um, now 16. And we, although our, our marriage ended, we have managed to co-parent. We've managed to be friends and um, our now partners and our spouses are friends. We, we are really, really high-functioning divorced parents. I guess I should say that in our marriage, alcohol was never a thing. He didn't drink. I really didn't have much love for alcohol one way or the other. Sure, it was fun. We would socialize. Um, yeah, I might have, have a weekend with friends or something that involved alcohol, but I was never at all a drinker on a regular basis. When we split up, I remember buying a bottle of wine and not really thinking much of it when I was living by myself, but I just thought it was kind of a treat. Uh, nothing, nothing to it really. I soon reconnected with someone I had known previously. We had worked together at, at a point and uh, we reconnected and he had just recently been divorced as well. We both had children. Um, his children were, he had two children. Um, he has two children. I have one and um, they are similar in age. And really soon we just realized that we had a lot in common and we were just, we reconnected and we ended up falling madly in love. And over a period of many, many, many years, we ended up finally getting married. But because of my past with my step family, which um, I should say I didn't mention, but my my dad's marriage to my second uh, his second wife did end um, while I was in graduate school for many many reasons. My past with that with that family was was really hard for me, and my parents did the best they could, and they were great co-parents, and to this day are still really good friends. They just could never be married together, but they do still love each other quite a bit. Their spouses are really good friends. It's amazing. I'm lucky. But I was so cautious about integrating my son and my husband's kids and making this life that it, we really did not merge any kind of household for, for several, several years because of me. I was so concerned about making it just right. When we finally did, we decided to bring our houses together. It was a huge change for me. I never do well with change. It was fear. Again, am I doing something wrong for my kid? Am I doing something wrong for his kids? Is this a mistake? Is this the right thing? As we were going through the process of starting this romance and, you know, um, going through the stresses of having children and, and just in itself and being single parents and then trying to merge a household and merge a life together, we started drinking a lot as a result, as an escape. So when we didn't have kids, we'd, you know, we'd get together on the weekend and it would be our relaxation. It would be the way we unwound. 
there was one key event that I remember, and it's when he was at his house with his kids. I was at my house with my son on a school night, on a weeknight. Both had to work the next day, and we called each other after the kids went to bed. And um, I was pouring myself a glass of wine, and I had already had a couple with dinner, which I had done on occasionally, um, but I never really drank alone. But then I started realizing I had been pouring myself a second, a third, and I was already past a half a bottle of wine. And it's 10 o'clock at night. We're talking on the phone, and I'm like, oh, that's okay, but goodness, I drank a lot tonight. I don't drink alone. Oh my gosh, is that a problem? And from there, literally from there, the conversation in my head changed. It was about justifying. It was about maneuvering. It was about figuring things out. It was about thinking about it. Drinking took up a lot of space in my brain, in my mind, in my day that other people probably don't even recognize. It's probably what a lot of people do when they're stressed and they're tired. But for me, it was just, oh, that's probably not the greatest thing that we're doing that. And then when I moved in with my husband um, before we were married, and that change was so significant, my, my, our drinking habits really kind of increased. So both of us were looking for sort of relaxation and decompressing and end of the week and Friday nights and that kind of thing. And I really just started drinking and loving my Chardonnay. You can put anything else in front of me, but Chardonnay was really my thing. I wouldn't care anything about any other alcohol right now. You could put anything else in front of me. I wouldn't care for it. But the, but drinking Chardonnay was, I just loved it. And it became um, such, it had such a place in my life. We got married um, four years ago yesterday, actually, during a hurricane, which is the story of my life, it seems like. But we persevered, but uh, we got married and have sort of just lived this adjusting life where we are just always, my husband and I are constantly, constantly, we're doers. We are doers. We we want to make everything right for our kids. We work really hard. He's a physician. He works really hard hours, taking care of everybody. That's just what we do. We love it, and it's exhausting. But my drinking continued. His drinking kind of settled a little bit. He stepped back and said, like, you know, we're really drinking a lot. We should probably cut back, you know, during the week. And I tried to do that for a while, and it really just didn't. It just still was occupying so much of my brain that I just kept doing it. And he would back off. He was never judgmental about it, but he would be kind of surprised. He's like, you're kind of drinking a lot tonight. And I was a functional drinker. I could go, I could drink a bottle of wine at night and wake up at six in the morning, not feeling great. I would never tell anybody, but would be able to power through the next day. I'd be sort of clear headed by 11 the next morning. Um, Not to say I was foggy, but I just was still sort of sleepy in the mornings, um, headachey a little bit and kind of did that whole thing for quite some time. And then, and then in April of 2019, he went away with his kids on a spring break to see his family out of state. I stayed home. My son was playing soccer. Um, and I had to work and it was a Friday night, Saturday night, not sure. My son, my son was upstairs and he came downstairs and I was downstairs drinking my wine, watching TV. And I had fallen asleep. I think. And he was in front of me going, mom, mom, mom. And I realized, I mean, he wasn't like poking me or anything to wake me up. He was literally just speaking. He's like, are you okay? I couldn't wake you up. And I was so embarrassed because I knew what had happened. I had been drinking so much. I was falling asleep on the couch. I never do that. There wasn't any big event. It was no big deal. He probably didn't realize it. Maybe he did. But to me, it was this, oh no. Now my kids are going to see this. It was the first time I really thought about the kids seeing this. It was the next day that I Googled the famous question, am I an alcoholic? How do I get sober? And I did that and found the bubble hour. I found Jean McCarthy. I found your very sweet face, um, only to be followed by that really gentle voice that has um, guided so many. I dove into it. I just was very sober curious. I'm very proud that I know that word. Um, That was absolutely me. I wasn't quite ready to completely eliminate. I didn't know how that was going to be, but I knew something was wrong. I, my husband came home after his trip and I was very thoughtful and very sad in a way. And I told him on a night we didn't have kids, they went to their other parents' house. And I said, I just have a really bad relationship with alcohol and I need to fix it. And 
is the sweetest man in the world. He just gave me a big hug. He just said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. And what that meant was I really need to cut back. I'm going to still drink with you, but I need to cut back. And we did that. We did that for several months. Soon after that April weekend with my husband, he and I were just sitting on the couch watching a movie. We were watching A Star is Born. And we were I really didn't quite know the the depth of that movie, but we were sitting there kind of towards the end. And I just really started feeling all the feels. And I started sobbing, just sobbing. And he was right next to me on the couch. Kids weren't there. And I just he just grabbed my hand and he just squeezed my hand and he just kind of leaned over. And it was just a, it was a I got you. It's okay. It's going to be fine. I really didn't even know why I was crying. I just knew I was so incredibly sad. It was just despair in a way. And in reflection on that moment, it's really where I realized I am so tired of being scared. I'm tired of fear. Fear was just all around me. Fear of my life falling apart. Fear my kids aren't going to adjust well. Fear I'm doing something wrong. Fear I'm going to hurt somebody at work. Um, Fear, fear, fear everywhere. It was such a theme that I addressed and just scared of everything. And yet my appearance, you would meet me and everybody would not have, nobody would have that sense about me. Sort of a force of nature in a lot of ways. So again, it was, um, it was no big moment, but it was a big moment. I didn't have a bottom really at that moment. It was just a, a really influential moment. So then we went on this family vacation, a lot of drinking, came home. I was Im- just fully immersed in a plan to move from sober curious to uh, the next step of the plan. I didn't know how to do it, but I knew that the bubble hour was was my lifeline. And I was taking walks every day. I was walking sort of two and four miles a day, which means I was listening to at least more than one episode a day. So I have heard every single episode of the bubble hour, I mean, sometimes twice. and. I was walking a lot and suddenly realized after a couple of weeks after that vacation that my muscles and my legs felt really weak, kind of tired, like that feeling like you've just climbed a lot of stairs or ran a marathon or, or something to that effect, like just muscle fatigue. And it was fairly intermittent. It kind of would come and go and it wasn't always any pattern I could put my mind to. But I remember saying to my husband, like, hey, something's really weird. I feel so tired. I don't know why I can't walk today. Um, we didn't really pay much attention to it except that, gosh, it really kind of persisted. And then in August, we went on another family vacation with his family and I was, uh, drinking a whole lot. That's what his family does too. And we were in a store walking around and my muscles really started getting very weak and my legs were heavy and I really couldn't stand in the store anymore. I had to lean on my husband to get out of the store and I really thought, this is terrible. This something's bad's happening. And being in medicine, I was thinking, I have MS, I have other some other neuromuscular disorder or some terrible is where my brain goes. And um, I then had to drive three and a half hours home. And I was worried that that wouldn't be able to happen. But it, I was actually okay. So when I was sitting, I was fine. I got home that night. My husband was at the beach, still had to work. And I was Googling everything I could. I came up with all of these scary scenarios, but I knew, I knew that I had to do what I would tell my patients if they came to me with this, which is that you have to cut out all external uh, factors that might be causing this. And for me, the biggest one was alcohol and I knew I had to do it. So that, that Sunday night, when I normally would have had a long day of driving, whatever, before work, I would have had wine and I did not. That's the first time that I really had a conscious thought that you just cannot do this. It's just not safe until we figure this out. And my husband had also been, he was with his family and now worried sick and doing his own research. And we kind of got a plan together to get some blood tests done that didn't show much at the time. He really said to me, he wrote me this text while he was at work and I was at work. And he said, I think, I think this is because of the alcohol. I think it's alcoholic myopathy. And you're going to have to, you're going to have to hold on drinking for right now while we figure this out. And that turned into a week that turned into two weeks. Um, and then it was a month and it was a month of no drinking. And I really, after about a week, I was like, wow, this is impressive. I might be able to do this. I'm not sure, but I think I might be able to, um, meanwhile, my symptoms were still there. Um, they were intimate 
at a month's time, my symptoms finally resolved. But in that time, I thought if alcohol did this and I did this to myself because I made the choice of drinking and I become paralyzed or whatever happens with these things, I will never forgive myself. And thankfully, the symptoms resolved. And I have, as I said, I have been alcohol free for one year and almost two months. I think, I think that brings me to where I am today, where I'm sitting in my closet telling you the story. Um, <laughs> I have three teenagers around. <laughs> well, so. congratulations on your one year anniversary of sobriety and congratulations on your wedding anniversary. Oh, yesterday. thank you. Thank you so, so much. I am I celebrate your recovery with you and especially your health. I feel like that's just the most important aspect mm-hmm. of this. I mean, if we if we don't have our health, uh everything else is so much more difficult. So I'm really glad that you were able to turn that around. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. as you celebrate your anniversary, I want you to talk a little bit about your relationship with your husband and how that has, has, um, what's it been like the last year of, of your recovery? I personally found it very hard to ask for what I needed. I thought you don't have to change. It's just me that changes. But of course, when you change half of the contents of a relationship, you change the relationship. So what's that been like for you? It's, it's one of the scarier parts of recovery for me. That is, I think a big, it was a big, um, fear again of, well, if I do this, then what? There was a list I made when I was in this process of really deciding how I was really facing the ugly, the ugly. That's really just the, all I can say. I was facing the ugly and I was saying to myself, all right, how is this all going to affect things? And it was, and one of the things I wrote down was, but this is what we do. And Mm -hmm. so then what? Um, And it really was a big deal, but it wasn't. I mean, I think I made it a bigger deal and it made me realize that my husband really can kind of, he's, he's a normie in a lot of ways. He really could take it or leave it, but he really likes to take it, but he could leave it. You know, if, if, if he said, if I said to him, look, I just can't have it in the house. I can't have you drinking. I can't, I can't, I can't. He would say, okay, fine. No problem. Um, I, I miss myself with him like that sometimes because we're both really at our just most relaxed. And I know that sounds terrible, but I've had to learn how to do that without alcohol. I've had to learn how to get to that same point where we both can be relaxed and accepting of the moment um, without both of us drinking. And sometimes he does have a drink and sometimes he doesn't. And it was really hard for me in the beginning because I got mad. I got mad that I couldn't be enjoying that buzz. I couldn't be enjoying the beach on a hot evening and sitting on the back porch with a glass of Chardonnay, but he can. But it was never directed at him. I don't know if that makes sense, but he is such a loving soul and he is he is um he takes care of me. That sounds so primitive and sort of 50s, but he is he takes care of me and he is always looking out for me and for this family. And I don't think that, um, I'm lucky in that I can, I can sit with it and he can do what he wants to do and it not really affect me at this point as much. It affected our relationship slightly just because I had to make my adjustments, but he really, um, he really has rolled with it. And if I asked him not to drink, he wouldn't drink, but, but I, I, I allow that because I think I can handle it. And that's just me. That's me in my situation right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a year is a long time to be sober, but it's a, it's a small, it goes by really quickly mm-hmm. when you look at it in terms of a relationship. So I, I feel like we sort of evolve into levels of comfort and you evolved into a, a level of comfort with alcohol as mm-hmm. a couple, which I think is, you almost said it this way. It's kind of a lazy way to interact. It, <laughs> it really was. Right. Like you said, comfortable, but I always think of it as it's kind of a late, it's almost like turning on the TV, you know, it's like, yeah. well, this yeah, is it's mindless. Of what we do, as you said. And, um, 
if it was like what we do is open a bag of chips after dinner every night, uh, you could say, well, that's not good for us. And that's not benefiting us. What are we getting out of that? Yep. But, um, and I often think too, that sometimes the person who there's one person who can take or leave the alcohol and the other person who can't, and that might be the person who's driving the continual use of alcohol as a little bit of a crutch in their relationship. So it's just all, it hits home for me as you talk about that. And, you know, one thing I wrote down, Jennifer, as you're telling your story is a a pattern of abandonment, Mm -hmm. of feeling abandoned, you know, when your dad took you to school as a kid, or, um, you know, when a new family pattern is set up, or then later on, you know, that incident with your friends abandoning. And I could see how it would be scary. It is scary for all of us when we decide to quit drinking and think, oh no, how is this going to affect my relationships? So to know that um, that is kind of a core wound and to realize I have to do this anyway, and the courage that that takes is something, isn't it? Did you really feel like it was a life or death decision? I mean, did the, did the health impacts that you felt, I mean, did that really hit home for you? Of Like, oh my gosh, this could change my life for the worst. It did. It did. Mm -hmm. It was not in a sense of, um, death per se. I think what I was up against was any scenario that I went to in my brain with the muscle weakness was not a death sentence. It was, um, but it was self-inflicted and it would be a game changer for so many people in my life. If all of a sudden I was not functioning and I was not mobile and I had to be, I had to rely on people. Um, so in a sense it was, oh my gosh, um, if I'm inflicting this and I am, and I can, I can, I can protect what I have. Why am I not doing that? And the next level of thought was, Cancers. I mean, the the amount that uh, the influence that alcohol has on cancers is astounding. And I honestly, in in medicine, for doing this, is I had no, I did, really didn't know. I didn't know it has its hands in like seven different kinds of cancers, and that to me was a big, big deal. I thought, well, I've got muscle muscle weakness, and now I've got this potential concern about cancers. I just was doing a lot of research, of course, and um. I just couldn't give myself really a reason. It was the thing I came back to was always my health. When I had any kind of relapse thoughts was, well, you really can't. I mean, how can you now at this point justify drinking, knowing what you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, 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 so it wasn't really life or death initially, but it was an influence. It was definitely an influence on me. Well, and honestly, when, when you are at such a busy stage of life or maybe any stage of life being impaired, not in terms of alcohol impaired, but like having reduced mobility, having to be dependent on others instead of everyone being dependent on me. And that was honestly something that I have feared more than death was having to rely on everyone else. Yes. Uh, to get around. And part of that for me was a feeling of unworthiness that, you know, I I really felt unworthy of the love and the relationships yes. that I had. That was something I had to recover from. And so the idea of, oh my gosh, what if I had to, what if I became a burden to these people? Yes. I think there was a fear of abandonment under that too, because I felt like I didn't deserve all their love and attention exactly. on a good day. How yep. was I going to get them to push my wheelchair? Yes. <laughs> I, I think that is, that is the subconscious thought is, is really, you know, am I worthy of this and how, and, and then what, if I'm not worthy of it and then I'm debilitated, right. what then, you know, yeah. you, you nailed it. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And that, that's a big awareness to sit with really, because I mean, the health aspect is huge. The heart aspect, the emotional mm-hmm. aspect, that's a whole nother level of recovery to just start to heal ourselves and our, our codependency or our mm-hmm. other focus and realize, Hey, I matter as every much as everybody else, yeah. you know, yeah. I need to value myself or honor myself. And, um, yeah, there's so much happening there. Okay. You started to talk about the health aspects. Can you talk a little bit more about alcoholic myopathy, what that is, why it happens and how it shows up? Yeah, it's, it, it's a, it's on a spectrum, essentially. Um, the more chronic your use, the more 
um, I guess, prolonged symptoms could be. Um, sometimes it happens after um, someone's not even really a high-use person. Um, it can be that you had a family vacation where you drank, you know, eight hours of the day for two weeks, and then all of a sudden your muscle enzymes or your muscle fibers react um, to the alcohol and they start breaking down so they can't recover uh, from, from use. That's kind of the simple way to say it, but there can be prolonged, um, damage that is not recoverable, uh, with mobility mostly. Um, and so there's not really a lot of pain involved, although some, some patients do experience pain. I did not. Um, and there's no, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. There's no way to do a test and confirm that's what it is. So it really is a sort of elimination process or process of elimination rather. Um, but it, it can, it mostly happens to people that use alcohol chronically and you, you can read the worst of the worst, um, about it and hear the scariest situations. But what's important to know is it really can happen to anybody. And I've never come across it, honestly, um, in practicing medicine that I am aware of, <laughs> that I am aware of, but, um, I had never, I've never come up really, um, with a patient that I can recall that presented to me with, with that, with those symptoms that I came down to that diagnosis. Um, so, and again, it happens a lot in any muscle, but mostly it happens in the lower extremities, um, mm -hmm. because of the bigger muscle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so you experienced it in walking it was your legs, yes. but it could be the arms or something like that. Yeah. As well. I did have, um, I did have a period of time where my, my forearms were felt affected by it. Um, and they just felt weak. And, and so grasping or writing for a period of time or typing on the computer would kind of wear me out a little bit. Um, but it was not, that was not at all the major, um, or initial symptom. I think it just, they're smaller muscles. So you don't really notice it quite as much as you do, I think with the legs. Um, and for me, it was my, um, anterior, it was the front of my legs, my thighs. And, um, that, that was the persistent and consistent symptom where it was the weakness in my thighs, which is why I always said it felt like I climbed like the Empire State Building or something. And, um, after, and it was even just as I woke up in the morning, it wasn't even that I had actually exerted myself. It was just sort of a weakness, um, from maybe the day before it, it was, it's an odd sensation. Um, and it, and it kind of walk around feeling like you're, you're sort of flopping your legs a little bit, like you're kind of throwing your legs out in front of you to kind of keep your stability and, and your gait's kind of funny. I could see how it'd be hard to connect those dots necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, it was. especially if someone is drinking chronically and has high use and then, yes. and then has a, a binge yes. result in this yeah. to think like, well, you know, I always have X amount of yeah. alcohol yeah. Um, to, to think that it, you know, it must be something else. And certainly, I don't know about you, but whenever something went wrong, I would think, oh, please don't let it be. The yes. Alcohol. Oh, yes. Yes. When my husband said it to me, I of course already knew that and had already crossed that off my list thinking, okay, this is all the reasons it's not that I know I need to eliminate it, but these are all the reasons I, sh I really don't have to. And I, when he texted me, I was like, Oh God, <laughs> you know, it was like, dang it. Um, I mean, I say that very loosely now, but it was, I was sort of thinking, no, not, not my friend, not my old reliable, you know, that was always there and, and was my buddy. And when you're in an addictive pattern, it's, yeah. I mean, it's easy to see it now and be like, oh yeah, I'm glad I gave that up. But when you're in it, man, you had to pry that right out of our hands. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, it really was. And I say, and it's funny how I think of that now is it really was a companion to me. It really was, I remember, this is so, what a crazy visual. I remember sitting there as evening, of course, and it was later at night. And I remember looking at my glass of wine thinking, this is the most perfect glass to hold my wine. And it was, I don't know, I've heard drinkers say this before where they, it's like they have a perfect cup or a glass or you know, it's all just like, you don't, you like it in this glass, but not that glass. And it has to be this many ice cubes or whatever it is. And I remember just thinking, this is the perfect glass and it's the perfect color of Chardonnay. <laughs> it's like, you're not looking at a piece of art. <laughs> it's, it's so odd to think about. When we talk about feeling fear of abandonment, it's a fear of loss of power or loss of control. And nothing speaks of 
power and empowerment like embracing sobriety or like going alcohol free. Yes. Really standing in your power and taking back your power over a relationship with the substance uh, is really claiming yourself back and saying, here I am authentically and whole and empowered and uh, taking back the narrative. It does. And it makes you feel you have a little bit of purpose again, whereas perhaps you didn't always maybe feel that, that solid in that, in that realm. Um, it, it, but it definitely get, gave me, it gave me definitely a lifeline back into I don't even want to say figuring out who I, who I am again. It, I don't know that I ever knew who I, I was. I don't know that I know now. Um, I know that my happy baseline was pretty low. I don't think I was really all that happy before I was drinking. Alcohol allowed me to feel some joy, which is false. And I remember feeling like if this goes away, am I going to be happy? I don't think I'll be happy. I mean, I wasn't happy before and how can I be happy after you take away something I love? Uh, I also thought that alcohol, that that um, sobriety, sorry, recovery would fix everything. I know that sounds really superficial, but I really, I had this sort of um, idea, like once I stop drinking, I'm going to have this clear head. I'm going to have all this personal development and things will be so much better. And it's true to some level, um, but, but not completely. You know, I mean, there's still a lot of work that, that you always hear about. You always hear about the work um, and you think, well, it'll be easier because I won't be drinking. And it is easier because you're not drinking, but it's still as hard. Veronica Valley, who her website is Soberful. She's a writer yes, and yes. recovery personality. She's mm-hmm. great. I posted something the other day about her times of sobriety. I don't know if it's 20 years or 25 years. She had a big milestone recently. Mm-hmm. And someone commented, uh, I don't think you're actually doing that well if you're not over it yet like as if she shouldn't still be celebrating it like she should be done fixing herself can you imagine (laughs) I thought oh well that's obviously not a person who's in recovery or has Uh, any self-awareness honestly um, and yet I also have to admit that when I quit drinking I thought the same thing I thought I'll be in a couple months, I'll have this licked and everything will be perfect because this is the only imperfect piece of my life. And then you start realizing, well, it's like when you do a puzzle wrong and you're trying to hammer that last I have to take apart the whole thing over here and rebuild it to make this work. And at some point in recovery, you start to realize, gosh, this is a really lovely way to live. This life of self-examination and mm-hmm. healing curiosity and willingness yes. to grow and change. I, yes. I think I like it better than just claiming perfection. I agree. I agree. And perfection is very dangerous. That's a dangerous line to, um, to follow and being able to ha- give yourself the grace to say, I am flawed. I do not know what I'm doing, but I know I'm doing something to be proactive and trying to find peace. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really in the end, what, what we're trying to do is, is, not even seek it out, but hoping it presents itself because you've created the space. There was a saying that I made myself, it was almost like a mantra that um, I made myself say almost every day is put in front of me the things I need and open my heart so I can see. And I just, I just needed to follow that every day because I'm a busy person. My brain is always firing and it's a numbing effect. I'm always trying to not think of what's really in front of me. Um, and I don't often take a breath and I, off, I don't often um, absorb what's, what's in front of me. And I needed to be able to consciously say on a daily basis that, okay, I'm asking whatever is out there, whatever power you believe in, and that I present it to me and I will try to accept it in the way that, that is intended and is needed for me at this very moment. It doesn't always work. I'm not always good at it, but I try to come back to that every day. And when I see these moments that are struggles for me, I I try to realize, well, that's what's in front of me right now. And, you know, I try to be all this very, like I'm very rational and I'm not totally irrational, but at least I try to get in a mindset where I'm aware that I need to be just a little bit slower and accepting of what's in front of me. Um, And I found that to be helpful. And I'm sure lots of people do lots of things similar to that, you know, but for me, that was what I needed to create to 
allow the space in front of me. I love that. Is that a phrase that you developed on your own or did you read that? No, I came up with it. I came up with it as I was walking down the street near my house. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. Your son, who is 16, have you talked with him about your sobriety? And have you talked with him about the genetics he might have inherited from you with a propensity for addiction? Not in so many terms. And that is part of my fear more than the fact that he couldn't accept it or doesn't know that something's going on. Um, he is, a, he is a sweet boy and he has, um, and, and I, I should say that I have two stepchildren too, um, that are, I, I think I said that, but they're of the same age. Um, so I have a 14, 16 and 17 year old. I have not had a direct conversation with him about my drinking and sobriety. I have had conversations that our family has genetic tendencies towards um, alcoholism or drug use. And this was before I was in recovery, actually. And I have talked to him since I have been sober about his al- any alcohol use, which he denies. And he denies he's ever smoked or inhaled or shot up or inhaled or taken anything, anybody's anything. But... Um, we've talked about it and he's pretty open about hearing things. And I think I'll get there. I did recently, he asked me about drinking something. Um, I don't remember the conversation, but he asked me in some way about alcohol and I said, well, Oh, I don't drink. Like I said it, like, don't you realize I don't drink, <laughs> you know, because I thought he was paying attention. You know, I thought he was always aware of my drinking in some way. And I don't know that he really was. Um, which is sort of a blessing and a curse for him in lots of ways in his life. But I think I'm glad for that. I hope he didn't see it. I hope he didn't see that I was drinking a lot and that he just remembers me. Like I remember my dad with always a glass of wine, you know, a martini in his hand. That's how I remember my dad. But we talk about, you know, we talked about safety. We talked about, this was an interesting conversation with him. I've talked to him about drinking um, as he gets older and he's good about asking me questions, but he, we talked about consent when drinking, when drinking and dating and at parties and with, with partners that, you know, the conversation isn't so much about drinking and driving anymore. And when you're talking about these intimate things with your kids, you know, it's also about how relationships and moments are affected by alcohol and how you're, if you are planning to be with somebody and be intimate with somebody, you better be sure that everybody is of the right frame of mind and that there's consent. And I know that's how I work on a college, obviously. So I think about these things all the time, but he was kind of like, Oh yeah, you're right. But what if, you know, I mean, there was lots of scenarios that came from that conversation. So I wouldn't say we talk about my sobriety specifically, but we talk about alcohol and a little, he knows about our genetics. Oh, it sounds like you have a wonderful relationship. He's a special kid. He's a special kid. Uh, your dad. Yeah, so my dad. You talked about recovery with your dad. I did. It, it's it's very interesting circle with him. I never thought in a million years that man would stop drinking. I really didn't. He loved his alcohol. It was his crutch. It was his medicine. It was the fixer of all things for a life that was wonderful, but also had a lot of baggage to it. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer, a very anxious man underneath it all. And he had a really bad event when we were managing um, the diagnosis. Uh, He had a bad event just um, with alcohol at my house. And the next morning was, as we say, where I live, a come to Jesus moment about you better get busy living or you better get busy dying, which is it going to be? And alcohol is going to be a part of that decision. So figure it out. And that was the beginning of the conversation. Two months later, he had um, surgery for his cancer. I was there with him. And I had to pull the anesthesiologist aside to make him aware that my dad was a drinker and that that, that could affect anesthesia, the anesthesia, in addition to telling the surgeon that he needed to have a prescription on hand in case he had um, delirium tremors or DTs. It's a withdrawal, essentially, and it's a physical reaction to withdrawal of alcohol, and um, there's a lot of disorientation, delirium. People get very combative, um, and you, and it happens a lot in a hospital setting, post-surgical, because somebody who drinks five martinis a night all of a sudden doesn't have it. And sometimes it can kick in. It doesn't always. And it 
it, I needed to alert them that he was a drinker because he's not, he was never one to be completely upfront about it. And so it was a sidebar. Oh, by the way, Hey, my father's an alcoholic. And could you have some Ativan on hand in case? And then the next morning, um, after surgery, when they were making their rounds, bless her heart, this medical student who came in to do the discharge brought up the fact that my dad, he, I see here, you're an alcoholic. I mean, her phrasing was terrible. She was new. It was, it was, and I embarrassed my dad. I called him out in a very embarrassing way because I had let them in on his secret and he was mad. Oh, he was Mm -hmm. so mad at me. It was that day he stopped drinking. It was that very day. It was, and he hasn't picked up a drink since. His wife was equally influential because she's the one that was with him every single day from the first conversation to the second conversation and every single day since. So I can't take the credit for that conversation, but it, was certainly, I think, his moment. It was, he needed to wake up and he did. And he took the opportunity and he has been alcohol free. And I have talked with him. It was soon after I became sober and had the muscle weakness and stuff. And I just said, I want you to know this is happening. And he said, I'm with you all the way. And he's, he's a poet at heart. And he would send me these texts, these really inspirational things every once in a while. And when I hit my one year mark, he was, he was literally the first person I I called that day. I mean, my husband knew, of course, but um, I I called him that morning and said, it's one year today. And he just wrote me this sappy text, you know, he's my hair. I'm his heroine. He's just amazing. I love, you know, he loves me, all the kind of things to dad tell you. We have that to um, reflect on. And he's been a coach to me in a lot of ways. And he's, he's really practical about it. I'm, I'm surprised through all of his um, years of drinking that he can come out the other side and say, you know, I'm really doing okay. And he never did a 12 step or anything. He just, boom, done. That was it. Literally have tears in my eyes as you describe that. That is so lovely. And um, you're very lucky. I am. I am. Fathers and daughters. And you can have tragically complicated relationships. And he and I have a complicated relationship. I know, you know, fathers and daughters. And um, there's always a potential resolution somewhere. And And it happens in ways that aren't maybe the way you want it to. Um, but things settle, they find their place and fathers and daughters. Oh, well, that's really lovely. Yeah. That's really lovely. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I really, really appreciate it. I'm so glad that you're well. Thank and you. I have never heard of alcoholic myopathy until you mentioned it. And I'm glad to be able to bring this information to our listeners. I'm almost could guarantee knowing how many people listen to this podcast that at least uh, a few might have experienced this and not connected the dots. So I hope that this has been uh, informative and uh, I know it has, and uh, I'm grateful to you for sharing your story. And I'm so looking tears from my eyes of you talking about your dad. Uh, That's just really lovely. um, Thank you so much. You have, um, I I have to just say again, and it comes from every person who's on your show and it is with the same intent every time the, the way that you continue to hold space and your energy in which you do it. And I I really, I know, you know it, but I have to keep saying, I think everybody has to say it, that the influence you have had on so many people's recovery and just the, the glow that comes from your heart and the aura that you have in your voice, in your sweet face, and um, is just a gift. And, and you do this with act of service and from place of service. The fact that you continue to give service in this way is just um, beyond. It is beyond. And it is with true genuine gratitude that I say thank you. It is just genuine. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for thanking me. (laughs) You're so welcome. (laughs) Uh, You know, I feel like uh, this, the whole bubble hour thing, the whole massive backload of interviews, 300 interviews, you know, um, days and days and days it would take to just listen to every episode. And uh, I just feel like it's something that the universe unfolded. And I'm, I feel like I'm just like riding the skateboard. I'm happy to be along for the ride, but uh, whatever is happening here is, it has a whole lot of, 
other other involvement. I mean, there's there's every guest that comes on brings their own magic, and it's just it is it is so lovely how we are all able to help each other and empower each other yeah. and yeah. together. Even though we never meet, <laughs> we never know who's listening, but somehow. Out. It's just really cool to be a part of it. But the yeah. thing about it is, and I won't take much more time, but it's the thing about it, it that is so um, unique to me is that it for people who are introverted, right, who don't find um, relief in a big group or, or um, AA meetings or whatever, um, to be able to have this resource. And for me, it really was the thing that allowed me to be in a non-judgmental zone and listen to people like me and every story that every story, every, I don't know. I mean, some people look at, you know, you read the review, the re- description of what the episode is and you think, yeah, that'll, that's a good one. You know, maybe I'll choose that one or not one. I just knew that every single episode was going to have something in it. It may not pertain to me completely. Um, you know, my story is boring, but somebody else's really tragic story, you learn, you just learn something from it and you can listen to every single one and walk away with just one more little nugget that, that you put in your toolbox. And it was, it's, it's that ability that, and I don't know where you get the energy, honestly, I don't know where you get the energy to do it. And I'm sure you, you have grandkids and you're busy. How do I just don't know how you do it, but it is, it is for the greater good for sure. And it's amazing. Oh, I can say it's amazing. That's so nice. Okay, and I take exception with you saying that your story is boring because I didn't find it boring at all. And every single guest says, "Oh, my story, nothing special." And every time I'm like, "Well, you just knocked my socks off." So, well, you know. I feel that way when I listen to everybody's story. It's yeah. just, um, I just think the beauty of it is when you hear a story that is not so glamorous, and and what I, you know, what I mean by that, it's not as shocking you know, um, those are, those, those break your heart and they, you learn something from that, but sometimes just the ones that are just like you, mm-hmm. you really mm-hmm. kind of go, Oh, it's okay. It's going to be okay. They're okay. They had those bumps, but maybe, maybe it won't be so bad for me either. And you know, I, I think it speaks to the fact too, that we don't need to have a hallmark moment mm-hmm. of, of beautiful, poignant, you know, this is the snapshot of, my moment of either awareness or healing or blah, 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 or this is the terrible thing that happened that was dramatic. I mean, sometimes the most powerful changes in our lives are kind of a slow, ordinary Mm -hmm. shift, and um, it still has profound impact. Yeah. And there doesn't always have to be background music or witnesses. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice, though? Lots of music and... Theme. Well, when we make the biopic of your life, we will. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so uh, much for your time oh, today. Oh, yours too, Jean. You're just amazing. And um, we just appreciate it. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You too. And a word to the listeners. If Jennifer's story resonated with you and you want to send her a message, email it via me. So send it to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will pass it along to her and make sure that she hears from you. So that's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for hanging in there and being part of the Bubble Hour family. Take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame likes to hide We think you're strong Just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the moment I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Oh, this head on me 
Just want to be free 